Seven. And uh, it's it's your chance of the, of those first two verses. We we did a whopping two verses last week, but they're two really important verses because you were uh, getting now the explanation of who's the object of God's wrath from chapter six through chapter eleven in that whole section. You have seen pictures of these partial judgments culminating with a. Uh, declaration of a final judgment. We see in chapter 10 that the angel has uh, given his oath and sworn that there will no longer be delay, but when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, then the things that were spoken by the servants, the prophets, were going to be fulfilled. We saw this angel back in uh, Daniel 12, but even if we didn't know anything about Daniel, I do think Revelation 11 and those first two verses are pretty straightforward about what we're talking about. And so as this is what we had on the screen last week, a comparison between the two, uh, between uh, what John hears uh, in the declaration in, in Revelation 11 two. And what Jesus himself says in Luke twenty one twenty four, as he speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem, all of the same uh, terminology is there. So uh, to me, Jerusalem is in, in view. Before we now start on the two witnesses, questions. Are you good? Got it. No problem. Passing the test at the end of today's class at 1015 when I give it to you. You'll be a okay. If you're new, there won't be a test. It's okay. All right. <laughs> uh, verse three. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have the authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in, a, in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming. So we don't need to talk much about that. Pretty straightforward. You're good, right? We'll probably be here a while, huh? <laughs> a lot going on there. So 
Um, as we have uh, talked about throughout our study, uh, our approach is to allow the imagery to speak for itself. That let's just, as we come at it, let it just give us the natural thought process, the natural symbolism, uh, and, and work with it in, in that way. I do want to note, I don't know if your Bibles like make like header uh, breaks or anything like that, but I do want you to note that verse 3 is not a new section, right? It, we're still going forward out of chapter 10 and chapter 11, that this is all one big unit. And now at this point, you have this description in verse 3, I'm going to grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy. How long are they described that they're going to prophesy? All right. Does that connect with anything in the prior couple of verses? Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. That's the same time frame. So I don't think you have anything more going on here than just simply my two witnesses are prophesying at the time of this trampling of the holy city that's been granted for 42 months. So some kind of witnessing is going on, kind of just very vague right here at the moment. It does give us an indication of the kind of testimony that's that's being given. Uh, in verse 3, these two witnesses are wearing what? All right, what does that usually mean in the scriptures? It's morning, okay? There's nothing about sackcloth that's, you know, a party. Uh, sackcloth is always pictured as mourning or judgment. Lots of places in the in the scriptures you can go to where you see sackcloth used that way. So we are seeing two witnesses who are prophesying at this time frame, during this time frame, and they are prophesying sorrowful things, judgment things, things worth mourning. That seems to be what, what this first picture is starting with. So far, so good. See, this is going to be easy. We're all good. See, this is no, no problem, Vicki. Um, I will say that at home, I, I have enough to understand the days of 42 months of 1,260. All the way going back to the lady running in the woods. Yeah. Um, so I don't get that part that I meant that I just don't know enough. Well, and I will... I will I will reiterate, if you have a question in your mind on something, I can guarantee you there are many other people in the room that do too. So uh, do not be nervous about, about that. So we've noted that this, this three and a half or the 42 months or the 1260 days, uh, that just seems to be a, a, a time that is used of a judgment kind of time frame. Probably for me, the best reminder of this to, to help that solidify is when Elijah is prophesying against Ahab and Israel, he does, tells them that it's not going to rain for how long? Three and a half years. So that's an image that's used in scriptures of a time of judgment. So to see three and a half used again, or 42 months, or 1260 days, I think is nothing more than indicating this is not a party that's about to happen. We've got judgment and, and doom coming. One of the reasons why I think the number keeps changing, though it's the same time frame, is so that you won't get all literal on it and go, okay, well, let me count. 
he just keeps flipping it around. Three and a half, 42 months, times time, half a time if you're in Daniel. Uh, 1260 days. Uh, and you might even remember if you go to Daniel, then he'll say, but those who make it 1,335 days. What's he, he's, he's not asking you for a calendar. <laughs> he's trying, who, those who get through this definitive time of God's judgment and wrath are going to be successful, be victorious, o- overcome. So if, if you, I would just make that as your side note. If the three and a half, 42, 1260 stumbles with you, just remember Elijah. Three and a half years of, of, of judgment, which I would, you know, think about, we've had like three and a half weeks of no rain. Can you imagine three and a half years? Goodness. <laughs> what things would be like? We're already like groaning here over like we need some rain, man. Uh, the, the decimation of that economy to have three and a half years of no rain was a serious picture of God's judgment against Israel. And so now you're seeing it again. By the way, just as I like to, you know, stick little flags on the sides, isn't it interesting that God uses those things against Israel? We are talking about Jerusalem here, this holy city being trampled for the same amount of time. So it's something that Israel would have understood. Three and a half years is not good. That's going to be a time of judgment. All right. Verse four. These. All right. Who are the these? These two witnesses that we're looking at, right? These two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, that's straightforward, right? We're like, how are two people, two trees and two lampstands? All right. This image is in the scripture somewhere. Where is it? So let's go there. We got to go figure out what it means over there. Go over to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. And if you struggle with finding minor prophets like many of us do, Zechariah is just a couple books before Matthew. So if you find Matthew, go backward a couple books and you're going to be there. All right. Zechariah. All right, Zechariah, Zechariah four, verse one, the angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me and waked me out of my sleep. He asked me, what do you see? And I replied, a solid gold lampstand that has a bowl on top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. By the way, if that's confusing, that's a menorah. So just there's your visual boom right there. There's your seven branches. That's the picture right there. Verse three, there are also two olive trees beside it, one on the uh, the right bowl and one on its left. So here's our image point that, that Revelation's coming out of. Here is our lampstand. Here's our two olive trees. So what we've been doing in our study is if we can understand how the symbol was used in its original context, we can pull it forward and apply it to the present context that the book of Revelation is talking about. So we figure out, okay. Well, when he used it there, it was referring to whatever we're going to see here. And then we're just going to run it forward and go, okay, so he must be talking about that when he uses that image again. So good news for us. Verse four, when I asked the angel, then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? It always is a help that you're not the only one confused. 
when you read these. You have Zechariah going, what does that mean? What am I looking at right now? So here's the answer. Okay, verse 5. Do you not know what these are? Replied the angel who was speaking with me. And I said, no, my Lord. All right, good. That we're with him. What is this? Verse 6. So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. And what are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring it out the capstone accompanied with shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan through the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. And I asked him, what are the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Good question. We're in Revelation wanting to know this, right? What are we talking about? And I questioned him further. What are the two streams of the olive trees or the two branches of the olive trees from which the gold oil is pouring through those two golden conduits? And he inquired, and he inquired of me, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. All right. So there's your answer. Now you might say that needs just as much of an answer as what we were just doing in the first place. <laughs> we get the answer to this so that we can get the answer to, to Revelation. All right. So let's set up a little bit of Zechariah 4 so we can understand what's happening do you remember why Haggai and Zechariah were sent as God's prophets to the people of Judah, of Israel? Okay, the temple is not being built. Remember, you come into the days of the, the, the beginning of the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel is there. They lay the temple foundation. Remember, the enemies then send letters back to Persia to get the work to stop. And it stops for about 16 years, it just sits there. From about 536 to 520 BC, nothing's happening. Haggai and Zechariah are two of God's prophets who come on the scene. Their primary message is get back to work. Why aren't you building God's temple? You need to finish these things. And if you've been with us Sunday nights, was that last year I did Haggai and Zechariah? It wasn't that long ago. We did Haggai and Zechariah and looked at those messages. But you have God saying, essentially, you've been putting your houses first, your concerns first, and you haven't put God's work first. And one of the things they seem to be concerned about is they don't think this is going to be completed. You see that like in verse 10 about the despising of the day of, of small things. And you will notice the same idea in verses 6 and 7. You have in verse 6... Here's the answer to what these two olive trees and these bowls and what all of this, this means. This is the word of the Lord, not by strength or might, but by my spirit. So who's going to make sure the temple gets done? God's going to do this, right? God is going to ensure this. Not because of you, not your strength and your might and your abilities. Because see, that's what they're sitting there going. Well, we can't do this. It's too much. It's too much opposition. And God's saying, 
I'm going to make sure it's done. And that's what the next verse is in verse 7 when he says there, what is this great mountain? So symbolically, if you have a mountain, you would look at that as an obstacle, right? How, here's this great obstacle in front of us. But notice the rest of verse 7, but before Zerubbabel, what will it become? Level, plain. Obstacle removed. So here's God saying, I'm going to take away the obstacles. Everything that is interfering with your ability to do the work, I'm going to do this. It won't be because of you. I will do it. I will level this so that the obstacles are removed and you will be able to accomplish it so much so that the end of verse 7 is they're going to put the capstone on the temple and everybody's going to be shouting grace to it, grace to it. This is this is ultimately the work of God. Now, a lot of question comes in at the end where it says, so who are these two witnesses or anointed ones? Well, do you remember who your two very important people are in Haggai and Zechariah that are the key workers at that time? Joshua and Zerubbabel, and that's pretty well understood that this is a reference to them, that you are looking at these two as these chosen ones, anointed ones, designated ones. They're the ones who are going to to do this work. In fact, in the prior chapter, you might remember you have Joshua pictured there uh, as being made clean so that he can uh, lead the people in in worship as the high priest uh, again. So. I want you to see that Zechariah's four big message, if you were to sum up what chapter four is about and what these two witnesses mean, is actually not very complex. It's God is going to do his work through these two guys and no one's going to stop it. Zerubbabel will finish the work. Joshua will will do the work and it will happen because God said so. Not by your strength, not by your might, but by my spirit, by my word, because I say so, I will accomplish it. So just, we're not in Revelation yet, but just Zechariah 4, if you were walking away from that prophecy, that's what you would hear. Is God saying, these guys are going to get it done. It doesn't look like it's going to get done, but God says it's going to get done and he's going to do it through them. That would be your big summary idea problem question about that or does that make sense so that we can take that image and we can roll this forward here in a minute but that's your that's your hold in your mind about who these guys are what these uh, olive trees and branches represent all right you're good that's all that seems not that bad it's not bad all right hold that in your mind jot that note down let's go back to revelation 4 all right chapter 11 verse 4 all right So in verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of of the earth. So God's accomplishing his purpose. God is going to do exactly as he says. It's by his word. This is going to be done. Verse five. If anyone wants to harm them, harm who? The two witnesses. Let's make sure we're tracking here of who we're still, still talking about. If anyone wants to harm them, It says there in uh, verse 5, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed uh, in in this way. So that's not 
too tough, right? That you have, all right, these witnesses are designated by God. If you resist them, that's not going to go very well for you, right? And that makes sense of any of God's servants, prophets, messengers, as those who ultimately have stood against God and his purposes are ultimately going to be destroyed. I think it is interesting to think about the fire coming out of their mouths because that is also used in regards to Jeremiah. You might remember Jeremiah has all kinds of resistance. Nobody's on his side. And God says, I'm going to make my word be a fire in your mouth. And essentially, that's what's that saying is it's words of judgment. He's not a dragon. He's not literally blowing fire. But his words are judgment words. What he proclaims is going to stand against the people. So I think that's a fitting picture here in verse 5 is whatever these two witnesses are saying and doing, those who resist are going to ultimately be harmed and destroyed. And the words that they're saying are words of judgment. They are per- and which makes sense. We saw that in verse 3, right? What are they wearing? Sackcloth, so that's mourning and judgment kind of imagery here. So what they're wearing is judgment. What they are saying is judgment. And it's proclamations about what God has said is going to happen. Okay, so far. Ready for verse 6. Verse 6. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain During the days of their prophecy, they also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. All right. Do you know what this would be pointing to? Let's start. Let's start with uh, what we do. The easier one, the the second part of verse six, who had the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with plagues? Moses. Moses. I mean, Gotta be right. Who else does this? Moses does. And I've already mentioned this guy who had the authority to shut up the sky for the whole time of his prophecy. Elijah. Moses and Elijah is a pretty unavoidable reading of that. I don't know how you would read that and go, let me name two other guys. That's that's Moses and Elijah. That that's who that who they would represent. Now It is somewhat interesting to me that to identify Moses and Elijah is interesting because they are representatives. When you talk about Moses, what does he usually represent? The law. He's the lawgiver. You talk about Moses, you're immediately thinking about law. Who does Elijah usually represent? All the prophets. to, To point to them seems to be like a statement of, all right, Moses and Elijah, law and the prophets, which we've already made, made the point that not by might, but by God's word, God's judgment, fire coming out of the mouth, judgment is coming. And it seems to be that these two witnesses then are a proclamation of judgment and they are identified as if they were Moses and Elijah. Now, We're knee deep into this so far. So don't forget, these are symbols, right? We don't have actual Moses and Elijah that we're just, we're getting imagery here. We've spoken of in these first two verses, a judgment is coming, a trampling of the holy city. And there are these two people, two witnesses who are giving their testimony. 
In verse 4, they are identified like all, these two olive trees in two lampstands, which we said from Zechariah is God's word is going to be accomplished. God's purposes are going to be done. Next verse, and if you resist it, you will also be harmed. You will also be judged. Next verse, they are now identified not as Zerubbabel and Joshua, but now as if they are Moses and Elijah, representing essentially the very words of God themselves, the law and, and the prophets. So I would kind of up to this point through verse six, perhaps to summarize it like this. They're giving testimony to the events that are happening. Now, I want you to think about how the law and the prophets do give testimony to the judgments that are being proclaimed. The law certainly did. I, that's what Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68 is all about. A very long section there where you have Moses first giving all of the blessings for obedience. And then after that, a very long detailed list of the consequences or the curses for disobedience. And I don't have time, but go read that section. And what happens to Israel not only when the Babylonians destroyed them, but also when the Romans destroyed them, is exactly what God said would happen to them if they disobeyed. It will talk about them being taken off the land, the city being destroyed, and everything is going to be ripped away from them, and they're going to suffer all of these things. So the law was a testimony to this judgment that was going to happen. And then it's not really tongue-in-cheek, but true. Every single prophet said that was going to happen. I mean, just... Start running through your mind from Isaiah to Malachi. They're all saying, if you don't follow God, God's going to destroy this place. We're going to wreck you for not following God. Lack of obedience is bringing judgment. So I think up to this point, you just have simply a picture of, we were back in verse 2, don't measure the courtyard. It's going to be trampled. The, the holy city is going to be trampled by the Gentiles. And here's the testimony of that. Here's the proof. God always does what he says. That's your olive tree, lampstand, purposes of God. Not by your strength or might, God's will, God's strength. He always does what he says. And the law and the prophets confirm that this is exactly what's supposed to happen for this rebellious people. That, at least up to this point... I think is where we're at, why it's using these kinds of images. All right, so we're halfway into it, but let's stop because I know we're, we're knee deep and we're about to get shoulder deep. So before we get shoulder deep, I'll let it process for a minute. I'll drink some water. If you think, ask me your questions. Or that was just so easy. Yeah. So I want to just think about so all I did was I went to the Old Testament and said, what was the symbol there? And I pulled it forward and went, okay, so then that means that here. Dathan? The testimony um, of the four tree witnesses. So the need, there was always a need for witnesses to testify to the truth. Right. So, so, so what we're saying is that Elijah uh, or the two witnesses which are mentioned in Revelation then um, represent the, the 
testimony to that truth. I think so. I think that's the idea is that as you read this judgment that's about to unfold, nobody should be able to say, well, this is a surprise. No, you've had all kinds of witnesses against you. And if you need two or three witnesses to confirm this, the law and the prophets, they confirm that this was going to happen. Moses himself actually said it, Deuteronomy 28. And you could even say, so did Elijah. That's what he was saying to them with the, the drought of rain for three and a half years. Is your wickedness, Ahab, is a testimony against you. You're going to be destroyed for what you're doing. But as you bring that into a bigger idea, that they have, rep, have a representation for the testimony of God, the word of God, which fits the prior verse about those who come up against them, fire comes out of their mouths against them. Well, that's, that's the word of God as a testimony, as a judgment. If you resist what God is proclaiming here, judgment is pronounced against you. Muriel? Absolutely. And they're also uh, chosen to work miracles, which is extremely unusual in scriptures. It's not like everybody walks around doing signs, but Moses and Elijah do. And they're at the transfiguration, which we are like, what, one lesson away from it? Is that next week, maybe? I mean, we're really close to that. So I'm not, I can't say that because that'll ruin all. I'll give you half my sermon right there. I've already done all the notes and I'll call it flushing to my head. But, but yes, the transfiguration, very important. Moses and Elijah are obviously very important key representatives of and witnesses of the word of God because they're even there at the transfiguration. So that symbol should, I think, carry that idea. I don't think we've walked off a ledge here to say this refers to Moses and Elijah and would refer to their testimony and refer to their proclamations of judgment against, against a wicked nation. All right. Mike. Uh, they're the two figures that are mainly used in the book of Zechariah. If you go to the prior chapter, Zechariah 3, you'll read about Joshua. Zerubbabel and Zechariah are your two leaders. Uh, Joshua is your high priest, and, Zach and not Zechariah. Zerubbabel is your, is your uh, leader of, of, of the return. So the two of them uh, are your key figures for the rebuilding of, of the temple. Uh, and so that's why it would be God saying, don't look that this isn't going to be accomplished. Here are my two chosen ones, and the mountain will be leveled, and they will accomplish what I have purposed. Not Moses' Joshua. Not Moses' Joshua, right. Okay, good. So when you're in Zechariah, you are long past, long, long past Moses' and Joshua of former days. Different Joshua, a Joshua high priest uh, in Zechariah's day. Yeah, you're talking about a 700, 900-year time span that has crossed since then. All right. Other questions? You ready to wade deeper? We're moving down into it. All right. Very good. <clears throat> Verse 7. Oh, wait. Did I do a... Oh, look at this. I have a whole slide here for this. Oh, good. Hey, look at me. I, I, out, I, out, I outdid myself. You never know sometimes. All right. 
Good. Let's 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 put all that up on the screen for a minute. If I were to summarize what each verse is essentially getting at for the image, summary of verses three through six, God's word's going to be accomplished. In verse three, sackcloth, witnesses, proclaiming, mourning, judgment. Verse four, the judgment is God's will, not by my but by my spirit, because it's the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which comes from Zechariah four. Verse 5, they're proclaiming God's, God's word. It's the fire out of the mouth, like Jeremiah's picture that is given there. Verse 6, Moses and Elijah. This judgment was proclaimed in the law and the prophets. And so if I were to round out where we are, then when you come into the first century, I, I don't know that we always get a good sense of this, so maybe I'll go ahead and take a minute here rather than just presuming it. The apostles and the disciples are frequently running around saying judgment is coming upon Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Not only do you have that like in Matthew 24, but if you remember when Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, do you remember what they got the false witnesses to say about Jesus? You know, it wasn't like, well, he's a bad guy and he. Well, that's 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 part of it. That is part of it. The temple, it is the the judgment against the temple. He has spoken against the temple. That's what they have a problem with, which is blasphemy to them because God's in the temple, which, of course, Jesus said he isn't. That's when Jesus says your house is left to you desolate. He was saying, God's not in there like you think he is. They did not like that, obviously. But Jesus is walking around proclaiming judgment. I even alluded to that last week. Remember when, G- when, the, when P- Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah. Some say the prophets. Well, there's another guy they said, Jeremiah. You know, wh- why Jeremiah? What was unique about Jeremiah. All he's doing is running around saying, God's not in that temple that's going to be destroyed. That's his whole purpose is yelling that. So why would Jesus be connected to Jeremiah except that? I don't know what else would connect the two together except saying the same thing's going to happen again. By the way, though, do you remember why Stephen got put on trial? All right, back up to Acts. This is what I mean. It's like these are very subtle proclamations that that are made, but sometimes we can can miss it. In Acts chapter 6, in verse 8, we we get the name. So when we say he and this man, we know who we're talking about. Chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, performing wonders and signs among the people. Look at verse 11. So here's, here's the judgment that they have. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And so they came and seized him and took him before the Sanhedrin. Now, I want you to look at verse 13. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place. What do you think Stephen was saying? 
temple's going to be destroyed. How else is he speaking against it? You know, you guys are bad builders, and I think you should have built it like this. And you know, he's not being an architect critic. When he's speaking against this holy place, he's saying God's not there, and it's going to be destroyed, which is the rest of the line there, and the law. So notice the connection of proclaiming against Jerusalem and the temple is connected to Moses and the law. Moses and the law testified disobedience is going to destroy this place. I don't think you have Stephen just having a wild hair going, you know, I think God, God's not here. He's probably quoting Deuteronomy to him and saying, Moses said that you guys are going to be destroyed. And what was his whole sermon? You guys have always resisted God. And so then they stone him for saying that. Well, the It is. Right. Right. That's right. If you take out the temple and destroy it, then that's the end of the system. That's the end of the law. That's, or if if you'd be so kind with me, Matthew twenty four, that's the end of the age. Right. That's the end of that age. That that's done. You destroy that temple, that's the end of that religious system, that's the end of that worship, that's the end of that age, that way of, that, that's all gone, that's, that's over. That's why the disciples in Matthew 24 freak out. What? <laughs> but this was the message that they were going around saying. When you come into the New Testament, I want you to think about this idea of the witnesses proclaiming yeah, Moses and the, and the law and Elijah and the prophets are a testimony for judgment. But the apostles didn't just sit quietly and not say those kinds of things. If you carefully read Acts, they are going around saying that, and that's why they're getting in trouble. They're saying, God's not here. This place is going to get destroyed. And that's why Stephen dies. That's why he's arrested for saying that very message. So I just want you to get a sense of as you come into where we are in, in, in verse 6 of Revelation 11, this idea of Jerusalem's fall was on the lips of Christians. They are trying to save them from this doom. Uh, think about how, how aggressive John was with the imagery. John the baptizer. You brood of vipers, right? You know. Repent, the kingdom has had. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. And to fill in the image, Jesus is about to come and pick it up and cut it down. The axe is sitting right there at the root of the tree. It was about to be the end of the thing. Repent, because the one who's coming is greater than I. I can't unloosen his, his sandal straps. And he's going to bring... Baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Spirit, blessing. They're running around saying this stuff. So I just, again, to get a sense of, to call this the witnesses, this is the message that's being proclaimed. That they're telling people this. Right? And Stephen showed them that he listened to Moses better than they did. Sure. Because in chapter 7 he said, this is what Moses was saying, that Jesus is coming. That's right. Which... Stephen is acting just like all the other prophets where they all stand up and go, you guys have been resisting God from the very beginning. 
And Stephen goes, and still you are to this day. You know, your resistance is why judgment has to come. It it makes logical sense to the picture. Okay? Yeah. When when they arrest Paul on the temple in Acts 21, they say, um, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law. And this place. And this place. Yeah. It's, a, it, it, it's, it's very subtle that we, we blow over it. Like same with Stephen where it, he's preaching again. They were all preaching against the place. And you can just imagine what that would have sounded like. God's judging it. You know, they weren't saying, you know, bad random events are going to happen soon. Think about this message that just was given right here in, in 11. God's word says judgment has to come on this place because it is a defiling against God and you are lacking obedience to God and it's going to happen because he said so. Not by might, not by strength, but by God's spirit. God is going to move and, and do this very work. Okay, Sean? Repeat what you've been saying all along about Jesus is our and Jesus is the new temple. And we had to remove the physical to make it more clear, the spiritual, which is what uh, Hebrews 12 is saying. But yeah, that, it's a huge, huge point. And that's why Jesus, I mean, it, Jesus is even implying it, you know, destroy this temple. There's a double play there. Like when he says destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, what did they think he was talking about? The physical temple. And they're like, Herod took 46 years. And he's going, wait, watch. (laughs) This body's going to get killed. I'm going to raise it up. But guess what that's going to mean? That thing's gone. I'm destroying that and raising this. Uh, It's it's a great double play that's happening there. Miriam? Absolutely. But it wasn't trying to convert the non-Christians. It had nothing to do with warning them. Right. Warning the Christians. Yeah, the most that it had for the non-Christians is to point out to them, God said this was going to happen, and when God says something, it happens. And here was a proof of it. And one of the great proofs is, if God will do this against his own people, then is he a respecter of persons? Does he show partiality in judgment? Absolutely not. Everyone's standing equal on the judgment seat. There's no special privileges of, well, you get the law a little bit differently. No, everybody's equal ultimately before God. So anyway, that's what this was all about, is John, Jesus, Stephen. uh, You just read for us. Paul there as well. These are all really important reminders that the New Testament is trying to say, here's what's going to happen. Here, It's going to take place. This is going to be this, this serious judgment. Okay? So I don't have time to roll forward because there's literally a minute and a half left. So there's no way to now bring in verse 7. So last chance on questions or we're going to have the test at the end and you're good. One of the things I just hope you'll see is if you just... As we do the book, just go, okay, where is that image in the the prophets? Figure out what that image means. And then just bring it forward. No secret sauce here. 
Just, what did it mean? Okay, well, then he, he must be using it again here. If he didn't want that meaning, why would he use the symbol? The symbol must be carried forward as the same idea. Otherwise, he would have picked a different symbol to, to get, a, get at it. Uh, did you have something there? Yeah. I just had a quick question. Yeah. So if this is what Stephen was saying, why, is the, why are they calling them false witnesses? Well, because I bet that the way they said it was not exactly how he was saying it. Because they also use false witnesses against Jesus in the same way. And it says... And the idea is not he never said that, because if he never said that, what would Stephen's defense be? I never said that. (laughs) And they brought up false witnesses who all said he spoke against the temple. And then the smartest thing Stephen could have said was, that's not what I said. That's not his defense. His defense is, you guys have always been rejecting God, and that's why this is going to happen. So the, the idea of false witnesses has far more to do with, I think, the means by which of what he was saying. He's just going around saying that this place is going to be destroyed and that's blasphemous against God. Well, that's not what he was saying. What he was saying is you guys are disobedient to God and being disobedient to God means God's not here anymore. And because God's not here, God's going to level this place. But I get a sense that they weren't giving the full picture. It was far easier just to say, well, he's blaspheming God and blaspheming this place. He says stuff against the temple. Yeah, but what? He wasn't just a wild hare saying, hey, temple's going to be destroyed. He's go, probably going, hey, Deuteronomy chapter 28 says, <laughs> and John said, and Jesus said, you know, it, this is what was testified. But that's a very good question. Did you have something? Like that? No. I was going to say, we should be used to a world where people take people's words out of context. Are you serious that people would take long speeches and clip it down to a false line and then use it against them? Never happens. All right. (laughs) 2,000 years, nothing's changed. (laughs) Nothing's changed. All right, 15-minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030. We'll pick up right here in Revelation next week, Lord willing. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.